Let me open us with a word of prayer, and then we'll dive right into 1 Peter chapter 3. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity we have week after week to gather together. Lord, I, I know that my prayer is very similar every week, but it's easy to take for granted the, the blessing we have every Sunday. So I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to take advantage of today, that we will listen attentively as your word is taught in Sunday school and in the main service. I pray that you give me wisdom and empowerment by your spirit to teach accurately. And I pray that you'll give us ears to hear and hearts to hear, not just for the sake of learning more, but for living more like Christ. And as we have the opportunity to celebrate the Lord's table as a church family, I pray that even now you would help us begin to examine our hearts to make sure that we don't have unconfessed sin that would disrupt our ability to participate in communion in a God-honoring way. Lord, we pray for those who can't be here this morning. There's a lot of illness and sickness that seems to be circulating around. I pray that you protect people, help their bodies heal, and help us, Lord, go away from here changed in our hearts and committed even more to live for you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I indicated, I'm going to be in First Peter. As we have been going through First Peter chapter 3, we've been in a section that begins at verse 13 and continues through verse 17, and we're going to finish that section today. It's been several weeks since I've taught from First Peter, so I'm going to do a little bit more of an extended review just to try and tie together things so that when we get to our last point, uh, we'll really have the context for thinking through the words. But as I've indicated before, this is really a transition point in one sense, even though the flow and the theme of First Peter continues on. I think the overarching point of this book, and you're actually going to hear me say it in my sermon this morning, the overarching point of the book is found in First Peter chapter 1, verses 14 to 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And as we spent several months covering a very lengthy practical section in chapter 2, beginning at verse 11 through chapter 3, verse 12, it really was playing out how do you live holy in this world. It talked about our relationship to our government, our relationship to our employers, our relationship to one another in marriage. And all of those things are really setting the stage for where we are now. I said this is a transition point in the book. It's transitioning away from just general life, and it's dealing now and through the remainder of the book more with how do you live holy in the face of persecution. A lot of people would tell you that's one of the themes of this book. It's dealing with persecution that comes to God's children. I think in the context of everything, we can, again, we can summarize some things that are going on. Be holy as I am holy, and all of that's supposed to be evangelistic. First Peter chapter 2, verse 12 says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. At least some who start out hating you for Christ may come to submit and repent and believe the gospel. So again, all of this is about being holy, 
The context now is about being holy and being evangelistic in relation to persecution. So as I introduced this text, I had a six-part outline centered around the idea of preparing for a life of hostility because of Jesus. It's just us getting the right mindset that says if we have days of peace and we are living publicly for the gospel, well, then that's just God's mercy because hard times will come. So I'm going to briefly go through my points and it'll bring us to where we are today. Preparing for a life of hostility because of Jesus. The first point was be a zealot for godliness. Verse 13, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? In the context of where it comes out of, Peter had been quoting an Old Testament text that talked about living appropriately. Not to earn God's favor, but because we're children of God, we're supposed to do good. We're supposed to be righteous. We're not supposed to sin. We're supposed to be following God's will as it's revealed in all of Scripture. You see all these themes that run together, but Jesus said, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's in Matthew 5.16. That's really what's at stake here. You want to be zealous for what is good. Prove yourself that way. In other words, be about good, which is not some general societal vote, what's good this week, what's good this decade. No, it's God's word. Do what God says. It's a life of obedience. It's interesting. I'm only, well, I'll be 52 next month. Some of you are older by a few decades. Some of you may be younger. But it's interesting how the definition of good has changed just in my lifetime. I'm not talking about something new. You all understand it. You realize it. This is talking about good in an unchanging sense, God's Word. It never changes. If you spend your energies and time doing God's Word, Peter's point is normally, even in a fallen world, you'll be left alone. It's not universal. Of course, Jesus is evidence that He did perfect and was persecuted and you suffered. But in general, He's saying, who's going to hurt you? In other words, if you are zealous, if you spend your time doing good, you put yourself in the best possible situation for avoiding unnecessary conflict. So first, be a zealot for godliness. The second point was embrace the blessings of hostility. Verse 14, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. The idea is that normally you'll be left alone, but if you're not left alone, praise the Lord. You have God's blessing. Even if it happens that you're doing everything right from a biblical perspective and then you suffer for it, well, praise God. You're blessed. It's what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. When I taught this, I went into that in greater detail. You're blessed. You have God's favor. Such that you don't have to fear the people that are harassing you. You don't have to have your heart stirred up and troubled and worried all the time. You can live at peace. You'll be in a position, even if that unusual thing should happen, and you suffer for the sake of righteousness, where you can consider it all joy. James 1, 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Even if you suffer, you're blessed. Consider it joy. 
Third point, be a zealot for godliness, embrace the blessings of hostility, elevate Christ in your heart daily. Elevate Christ in your heart daily. Verse 15, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. This is what you should be focused on. Rather than being bothered by persecution or being bothered by people who might insult you or do things, you just set apart Jesus in your own heart, in your own mind, and recognize he's greater than everything, but you set him apart in a certain way. Set apart, sanctify is just another way of saying set apart, sanctify Christ as Lord. He's the Lord of the universe. There's a book in my office, and I've read it many times. I've gone through it in small groups. I've used it for discipleship called When People Are Big and God Is Small. Just dealing with the natural tendency we have to fear man. Not necessarily if we're afraid of them, but we're just overly concerned with what do people think. Will they like it? Will they not like it? Will they? Won't they? If Christ is Lord, you don't have to worry about that. He's supposed to be the one that you're concerned about. He's the ultimate ruler and king. Worry about what he thinks, not what everybody else thinks. Particularly in the midst of hardship. And this is an internal issue. It's not just knowing it theologically. It's internalizing it so that you live it. So preparing for a life of hostility because of Jesus. This is, as I said, a quick review. We've taught... I've got messages on all of this. Be a zealot for godliness. Embrace the blessings of hostility. Elevate Christ in your heart daily. Be ready to defend your faith. This was when I gave you homework. Told you to work on your testimony. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Every single Christian is supposed to be able, if you're put on the spot, to defend the faith. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, John 14, 6. You ought to be able to explain to anybody who asks why that's true. You ought to be able to explain the gospel. How is it that you're saved? People should see hope in your life. You should be living differently than the world. They should see something that causes them to say, why are you different? What What's going on? I see something that's different in your life. Tell me about it. And the idea is that we should be able to think this through, that we should be able to engage, to respond, to deal with questions. We do it with gentleness. We do it with reverence. We should never be proud of our faith such that we're in and you're out. I'm going to heaven, you're going to hell, and I'm happy about it. But as I indicated, and I spent some time talking about it, this is a critical issue, particularly in the American church. In my lifetime, I've seen a lot of people, not just that are shy. I understand not everybody's comfortable standing up in front of others. I'm thankful that that's not an issue for me. It'd be a hard thing to be a teacher and be scared to death to talk in front of people. But that's, that's just a personality issue. That's just God made me that way. Even if you aren't comfortable front, standing in front of people, you have to be prepared to share your faith. You have to be prepared to give an account for the hope that's in you. Fifth point, and I've been rereading them, but I'll just go to this fifth point. Live so that your conscience is clear. The last time I taught, this was my point. Live so that your conscience is clear. 
Verse 16, and keep a good conscience, so that in the thing which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. A good conscience has to do with an inner recognition of sin. When we can see what's going on in our lives and we can identify sin and repent of it. The challenge for us to keep a good conscience is that we sin every day. I hope we sin less now than we did when we were first saved, but we still battle against sin. The key to keeping a good conscience, of course, is stop sinning, but it's also to repent, to turn to God, to ask for forgiveness. But as I alluded to when I taught on this, another major issue, particularly in our society where good is constantly redefined, is some of us have a good conscience when we shouldn't. We think we're okay when we should be repenting. I mentioned I've shared the gospel for years with someone that would tell you, i got a clear conscience. I'm good. So we have to be careful. We have to be sensitive to our conscience that tells us of sin, but we also can't trust our conscience because we can get hardened to sin and calloused, and we can accept behavior that we just get comfortable with. Sure, it's sin, but I've been doing it so often for so long, it doesn't bother me anymore. So we have to be careful. We have to listen to our conscience, but we also have to not trust our conscience. It's a constant state of self-examination where we're looking into the mirror of God's Word and evaluating our life honestly. Evaluating our hearts honestly. There are a lot of comforting passages, but I love 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a daily thing. Daily, we come to the Lord and we confess our sins. Today, you should be doing that. We're going to be taking the Lord's table. I'm going to give a warning that I always do from Scripture. We don't come to the table in an unworthy manner. That just means we repent of our sins. If we know something's going on, we have to repent of it. If we have that kind of good conscience, which means we're living obediently, means we're zealous for the good, this all fits together, our behavior is excellent among the Gentiles, then God will vindicate us. You may be slandered by people. You may be mocked for your good conduct. You may be humiliated by others for your good conduct. But it says those people will be put to shame. God will settle accounts. You don't need to worry about your reputation. God can take care of those things. Again, these are attacks directed against us because we're doing the right thing. If that happens... If we're keeping a good conscience, which means the things they're saying aren't true, then God will deal with them. Our godly behavior will vindicate us against false accusations. So you can see when you tie all this together, our lives being evangelistic, really there's two parts. One is we're ready to give an account, but we're also living the gospel. In fact, the only way they're going to see the hope is if we're living correctly, if we're living with a clear conscience, if we're living with zealous desires to do good. So that is all the background to get us to our point today. Preparing for a life of hostility because of Jesus. Be a zealot for godliness. Embrace the blessings of hostility. Elevate Christ in your heart daily. Be ready to defend your faith. Live so that your conscience is clear. And now, final point.
point, the sixth point. Trust God's will if you begin to suffer. Trust God's will if you begin to suffer. And in this context, we're talking about suffering for the sake of the gospel, not just a hard life. Verse 17, the concluding point of this section. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather for doing what is wrong. This verse really summarizes the totality of what unjust suffering is. I'm going to summarize. I mean, it's very easy to understand, but I'm going to be elaborating on a few things. But the simple point is just like it stated. It's better to suffer for doing the right thing than than to suffer for doing the wrong thing. There's a good way and a bad way. One bring God's blessing. The other is you just getting what you deserved when you misbehaved. Again, you have this idea that Peter's sitting out there that the normal thing is if you're doing the right thing and you have a clear conscience and you're zealous for good, normally you can expect that you'll be left alone, but maybe not. For it is better. It's just tying into this idea of those who revile your good behavior. Those who slander you, say false things about you, make false charges against you. Even if that's all happening, it's better. It's better, though, has a context. If God should will it so... This is something that we have to constantly come back to, God's sovereignty. But what Peter is making clear, without going into a lengthy theological discourse, he's just stating something simply. If you're suffering for the sake of righteousness, then that could be, in that circumstance, that's God's will. It's not, it could be, it is. God's the one who wills those things. So even if we're suffering unjustly, we have to always remember, look, this is just God's will. And don't argue against God. Again, Peter's tying this whole flow together. Normally you don't have this outcome if you're zealous for good. But if you do, it's better. Again, you're blessed, was the words of verse 14. And we can take comfort that no suffering that comes our way, no false accusations, no persecution for the gospel is outside of God's will. It's supposed to bring us comfort to know that nothing hits us without going through God's hands. And Peter again puts out the contrast. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. Now, it's interesting because Peter has already made this exact same point in a particular context. Look back in 1 Peter chapter 2, go to verse 18. If you recall in verse 18, Peter was talking in that day to the specific circumstances of slaves and their relationship to their masters who owned them. The applicability for us in the context of society and life is us in our employment relationships with our employers. 
Peter had said there, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. Not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor, again with God, if for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up unto sorrows when suffering unjustly. Verse 26, for what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? In other words, you're just getting what you deserve. You don't get a pat on the back for that. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God, for you've been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. So Peter has already said this exact same thing, but in that context it was narrow, servants and masters. And what he's doing is he's taking that exact same principle and making it clear it applies to everybody. Whether you're a servant who has a master or whether you're the master, or whether you're retired, or whether you don't work, whatever the case, the principle is the same. You can't pat yourself on the back and say, I'm suffering for Jesus if all that is happening is you're being punished for your misconduct. I gave an example of that. A lot of Christians have a bad view of their workplace. Until I came to Lakeside 11 plus years ago now, I only ever worked in secular environments. I worked at a secular law firm. I worked for a public agency as their in-house attorney. And from time to time, I saw Christians who really thought they were being persecuted because their boss wanted them to work while they were on the clock. Well, he won't let me read my Bible. So what? I can't read ESPN sports page either. You're supposed to be working. It's not wrong for a boss to expect you to do your job. That's not suffering. If you're ignoring your responsibilities at work because you're trying to be godly by evangelizing or by being the pastor of the workplace and that's not what you're hired to do, well, that's on you. If you suffer because you did wrong, there's no credit to you. You don't get a pat on the back. But if God wills it, and you've done as much as is humanly possible to do the right thing, and persecution and suffering comes your way, that's a good thing. You're blessed. This finds favor with God. And what we have to constantly remember and where we have to detach ourselves from ourselves is we have to remember that this is all about Jesus as Lord. So much of the problem that we have in our heart comes when we're focused on us as Lord. I could go back through and I can think of the number of times that I got annoyed or frustrated during the week. And most of the time it's because things didn't go the way I wanted them to. Just wasn't happy because I wanted it one way and it wasn't that way. God is sovereign. It's about the Lord. I'm not suffering just when Joe doesn't get his way. 
None of this is talking about that kind of pettiness, which is what occupies a lot of our time. Or perhaps it's just me. Maybe that's not you. (laughs) But we have to recognize that on those rare occasions when we're doing the right thing and people mock us or slander us, we don't have to defend ourselves. I won't get into all of it, but there was a famous Christian ministry this week, a famous Christian pastor, church with 13,000 plus people, somebody that's on TV all the time, somebody that's on the radio all the time, somebody that's written a lot of books, and there was a blogger, somebody on the internet that kept criticizing the church. And so this pastor in the church sued them. It's all over the news. I don't think they're applying this text. They're not seeing that as a blessing. They're seeing it as a personal attack. I read an unconvincing article by the person explaining why the clear biblical prohibition that says don't take other believers to court didn't apply. But here's the point. At the end of the day, they decided they had had enough. They wanted to defend themselves. They wanted vindication. Which is a far cry than Jesus, who while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. I've been accused of things that are not true. I'm sure we all have. But I've been accused of things in ministry. And I remember the first major time it happened, I was so hurt. I was so offended. I wanted to make sure everybody knew that I had done nothing wrong. And I kept, I wasn't teaching First Peter, I kept going back to that verse. When reviled, he did not revile in return. When suffering, he uttered no threats, but it's the rest of the verse that I kept reminding myself, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. The point was, Jesus was fine to leave everything in God's hands. That's where we have to be. And if suffering comes your way, just understand that's God's will. In that circumstance, if that's God's will, it's okay. You have found favor with God and you're going to be blessed for it. So the point is don't lash out. You don't have to fight back. God will take care of your vindication. And here's the challenge for you. You may not be vindicated on the earth. People may think bad things about you on the earth. You may never be able to clear your name on the earth. And guess what? Who cares? You're blessed by God. You find favor with God. And when you get to heaven, God's not going to be saying, boy, look at these accusations. When you get to heaven, God's going to be saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Even in those hardships, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. To those who are called according to His purpose, even if His purpose for a season of your life is to suffer unjustly. Let me close our time with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray for each one of us. Lord, it is so difficult to endure hardship. 
None of us enjoys pain. None of us enjoys discomfort. None of us enjoys being talked about. Or having people whisper behind our backs. Or have people say things that we know are not true, that are very hurtful and that paint us in a bad light. Lord, I pray that you would help us focus on you. So much of our hurt and pain comes because we are consumed with ourselves. Forgive us when that is the case, Lord. And I pray even when times are good that you're preparing our hearts to apply all these truths if by your will things should turn bad. Lord, around the world, even this week, I read of Christians being killed because they were Christians. There are believers around the globe suffering imprisonment and losing all of their materials and suffering physically. Lord, for most of us, those things are foreign and we thank you for the relative peace we have here. But Lord, help us not be complacent. Prepare our hearts if by your will, things should change in America. Lord, if we are reviled, if we are slandered, if we suffer because we're doing good according to your word, Lord, help us to trust you. Help it to be enough for us, Lord, that we have your favor and your blessing. We love you. We ask all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.